Welcome to the Onyx Pathcast. I'm this week's host, Dixie Cochran, here with Eddie Webb. Hello. And Matthew Dawkins. Hello. Hey, are you going to keep going? Nope. Oh, okay. All right. You're trying to sing two syllables. Uh, yeah. Awesome. To be honest, that's all you need from that song. <laughs> yeah, I will say that. I'm already like playing the rest of the song in my head anyway, so... Uh, now, now that I know more about the music video or have been reminded of it, that's all I can think of now is that terrifying clay head. Yes. I just can the... see it in your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you said you weren't going to sing anymore, you liar. Well, now that you've started bringing the clay head back into the picture. <laughs> that's up the stakes, Dixie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> How far is this gambit going to go? Uh, I, um, plus four complication. Um, <laughs> um, so that means the next time we meet at a, an in-person convention, I will bring a clay sculpture of your head just to make oh, you no. feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and I will be covered in sap just to do the same to you. Yes, yes. I'll and give you a big hug, just a big old yeah. hug. And I, I, this will be amazing if we have to do these episodes in reverse order. Then people are like, why are you covered in sap? <laughs> oh my god, you're right. Uh, so we're recording this with a plan to release it this upcoming Friday, but it's possible that if something goes wrong, we have to release it next Friday, and it's, there's a bunch of weird shit going on. No, wait, this one's for Tiny next windy. Friday. Yeah. I don't even know. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, shush, you shush, all of you shush. Blocked, blocked, blocked. None of you are free of sin. None of you are free of sin. None of you are free of sin. (laughs) (laughs) The people were astonished by her doctrine. (laughs) Uh, So today we're talking about a very rambly topic, but we like rambly topics here at the podcast because it gives us uh, a pretty easy way to fill an hour or so. Um... (laughs) It's true. We love the podcast, but also anything that allows us to just babble for an hour is great. No, it just, it, it, it makes it easier when instead of being like, oh God, we're only at minute 40. What do we say for the next 20 minutes? Instead no, it's, it's like, oh, we've had an hour and 15. We should wrap this up soon. Right. No, I, I well, completely agree with you. Well, here's a question for you. Which episodes I, I'm the that host. we have, yeah, but I, I've got a question as okay. a guest, I guess, as a co-host. You're a co-host. Yeah. As a co-host. Which episodes have left you thinking at minute 40, oh Christ, where do we go from here? I could not name specifics. I know that we always dig our way out of it, but there have been a couple of episodes where we've just been talking about a subject and I felt like I got exhausted somewhere around minute 45 or 50 and I was like, uh, um, uh, shit. I will say a couple of our deep dives have occasionally felt like that. Yeah. Um, uh, mainly because at least I get in that headspace of, did I talk about this at a convention? Did I talk about it five minutes ago? Do I need to yeah. cover this ground? Do people already know this? So I end up overthinking it to a degree. Yeah, I, um, I definitely had that happen before where I've been like, have I told the story on the podcast before? The answer is probably, but deal with it, people. Right. Whereas the the deep dives where, for scheduling reasons, I end up being the host and I actually don't know much about the game. And I just ask you guys questions. I feel like those for me, go really fast because I'm like, I actually don't know. Let's dig into this. This is kind of neat. Mm-hmm. Or when we have someone come on as one of the developers, um, the, the Eric Zawatsky episodes are great because basically it's going to, Eric, tell us about Deviant. I just sit back for 45 minutes, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, we love you. We love you, Eric. <laughs> yeah, no, I I have that issue with some of the deep dives. I have that issue. There's been, like I said, just a, a couple of subjects where you've hit a point where I'm like, oh, God. Oh, God. And then luckily, usually one of y'all says something or I say something and it puts us off on a tangent for, you know, the, the additional 10 minutes needed to finish the episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember when we first started this show, uh, not this particular episode, the... Really? We, you've, you've, you, you, <laughs> we started you, this episode in 2018. You, it's really you long. You don't remember that? <laughs> because it was four minutes ago. It's been a long year. It's 2020. It's been uh, a long year. The I remember there were a few episodes we record, re-recorded uh, because we felt like we got to a certain point and we were just either rambling in a very uninteresting way or we just i think it took us a while probably about 10 episodes or so for, before we really found a comfortable rhythm mm-hmm, how probably. we started presenting and so we made a few slip-ups then which i think is perfectly normal mm-hmm. uh, oh, totally. I, 
I can imagine if this was a more a, a well edited, uh, some kind of high production value podcast, if such things exist, that would be a they very do. frustrating process. They they do they do. Um, I know we've spoken <laughs> before about um, my dad wrote a porno uh, that podcast and how they record something like uh, I think it's an hour and a half for each episode, which usually mm-hmm. lasts about thirty to forty minutes. Right. Uh, so. Yeah, that must be an interesting experience, editing that down to about well, below half its size. Wow. Wow. Hmm. It's almost um, like they're professionals. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and what are we? Freelancers. <laughs> I remember a time we had to record that support interview with Ian. We had to record that three times. Oh, my God. That was the worst whenever his internet would cut out and it wouldn't save. Because by by attempt number three, we had memorized the first 20 minutes of the interview. (laughs) And it didn't sound like we were interested anymore because I was trying to be like, so Ian, tell me about Trinity. And it was like, we've already said this so many times. Uh I can't. It was very frustrating. I feel like if we were, if I ever invited him on now for that interview, we'd probably still remember pitching chunks of it. <laughs> it's the one episode that we have actually like memorized. It's just tattooed on the back of my eyelids. Whenever I close my eyes, I just see the text of that interview drifting across them. You know, if if Neil was here with us right now, he would say, "Remember when is the lowest form of conversation?" <laughs> Despite the fact I brought it up. He said that to me a couple of times now, mostly because it's a quote from The Sopranos. I was going to say, it's a Sopranos quote, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, we can go through entire conversations lasting upwards of an hour just in, in Sopranos quotes, which probably speaks to the volume of dialogue that exists in that TV show and also how strange Neil and I are. Also, yes. his, his other favorite quote is the, what, subtext is for cowards? Yeah, yes. from, from Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Now, do you know that the gentleman who played Garth Marenghi is on The Haunting of Bly Manor as a very serious character? No. I didn't know that. He is. Uh, I know. I, yeah, I follow uh, Matthew Holness on Twitter, but I didn't know he was in Bly Manor. There yeah. Very, very good. Um, also, uh, who is it? I was definitely about seven episodes deep before I realized that one of the main actors in that Hill House is the. Uh, Guy that played Elliot in E.T. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. Huh. He's he's one of the leads in both se- both seasons, and I'm like, Jesus Christ. Like, okay. Doing well, a British accent in Bly Manor? It's a whole thing. So what I've been watching lately is Cobra Kai, and I saw we mentioned this recently on one of our many discords, and, mm-hmm. uh, and I was going to chime in and say, oh, yeah, I was watching it and just forgot, but... I've started watching it, and I was never a fan of Karate Kid or, well, that entire franchise when I was growing up. But And so I'm coming into Cobra Kai cold. And I've, of course, been tempted, like I do with most movies and TV shows, to then go on IMDb or equivalent and look up an actor's history and mm-hmm. finding great big gaps uh, you know, from the late 90s through to about now. Of of people's career trajectories uh, because yep. they were big in the late eighties and right. then they were of that um, that brat pack generation almost and then boom nothing um, not quite as bad as Paulie Shaw but let's not talk about him and <laughs> the and what actually struck me and this will sound incredibly condescending uh, but I'm going to say it anyway you can't stop me is how well-performed Cobra Kai is, how well-acted it is. Because I think, uh, in my mind, I look back at a lot of those 80s movies and I think, yeah, a lot of it's really phoned in. A lot of it hmm. is really... Um, it's it's fair enough, the story is solid enough, but the performances are pretty wooden. And so you've got characters like the Cobra Kai martial arts teacher, Crease and... Um, who is a martial artist by trade, and and other performers who are who were actors back in the eighties and haven't done much since then, who are really delivering excellent performances, and it just makes it. I guess it makes a fellow wonder uh, how well not what they've been up to, but have they been on the stage? How have they been playing their trade, and why do people of such substantial acting quality not? stay more present i guess in the lens is it just down to luck the vagaries of the industry and i'm very much spooling off but it's something that's been on my mind a lot recently hmm. 
I feel like Wikipedia can tell you where they have been, usually. Unfortunately not. There's often just big gaps. Hmm. Uh, you know, uh, for all I know, they just spend time with their family for a period. They burn their I, money. Yeah, I mean, that's... Are you, are you planning your 20-year disappearance from the industry? <laughs> uh, I guess I guess it could be a good idea, couldn't it? I He's like, I just need out. one reason. I need one reason. <laughs> I'll come yeah. back in 2040 with a vengeance. <laughs> yeah, I, I will disappear for 20 years just so I can have an explosive comeback. <laughs> I mean, I'll there spend... are worse reasons. <laughs> I'll spend all that time planning my resurrection. Good hmm. idea. Yeah, Very good yeah. idea. Uh, anyway, that's not what this is about at all. Like, none <laughs> of the things that we've talked about are the subject of this episode. I'm shocked. Uh, so, you know, when it's like one of the things that I don't like in video games, it does it in Kingdom Hearts, it does it in some of the Assassin's Creed's, where you get like through four hours of gameplay and then you get the title screen. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's our podcast every single week. <laughs> and it's like, you have to get through the first 10 to 15 minutes of us talking about whatever the hell we want to talk about. And then it's like, a topic, you say? <laughs> there's, there's a topic? Um, so today we are asking a very important question. Uh, why why are games? What what? Why what? are games? Um, because? baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> why are games? Baby, don't, baby hurt, don't hurt me. me. Don't yeah. hurt me. We got Eddie to join in. That's 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 a first. Eddie never sings with us. Yeah, I know. I, 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 I lost track. Of, I got so wrapped up in the question, I got distracted. I yeah, forgot G- myself. GM GM, don't hurt me. <laughs> What are games? GM, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. All right. All right. I like it. We were to write parody songs. That's actually what this entire uh, episode's about. Uh, Thanks for joining. Where can we find you online? (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, um, so we have to, we were talking about this a little bit beforehand, and it's that people use games for all different things. Um, yep. I think for the most part, like we're going to keep this mostly for uh, TTRPGs and other RPG type games, like as far as computer games and things like that. We're not going to go too far into like the history of chess or what have you, although I am watching The Queen's Gambit right now and it's very good. Um, so what do you personally, Eddie, get out of most games or is it different depending on the game? Um, I don't know if it's so much depending on the game is depends on, on the group and the environment. Right. Yeah. Um, like the kinds of games that I will play at a convention are different from the kinds of games I'll play casually with friends and they're different than the kind of games I'll play online. We talked a little bit about this, um, a couple episodes ago, but, um, uh, uh I noticed even just like we've been playing, uh, consulting detective and the yeah. stuff we talk about and do consulting detective are things that we probably would never say on a stream. Right. <laughs> Yeah, probably. Um, um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I could bring uh, Lascivious, uh, I'm trying to remember his name, Patrick Finley. Onto the stream <laughs> oh, no. Please don't. Could and should please, are two very please different things. do not things. do that. <laughs> um, but I mean, uh, it's also just like the kinds, uh, like um, if I want to sit down and just play a fun uh, uh, tabletop game or run into a fun tabletop game, like I'm running a. Um, Marvel superheroes game right now. Um, and that's just mindless time travel nonsense, right? Um, I have everyone basically picking ran- relatively random characters and they're bouncing through timelines and they're finding completely arbitrary MacGuffins uh, and they're having big old superhero fights and doing silly things like ant puns. I mean, so it's, 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 it's very much hitting one sweet spot. Um, whereas uh, recently I also played 10 candles and that was a very kind of cathartic um, improv, you know, yes and experience that was very, very cool and very, very intense, but also weirdly funny and was only a couple of hours long and that was about the right length mm-hmm. for it. Yeah, I've, I usually 10 Candles games run like two to four hours and that's perfect, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that's, that's one of those games, too, that really depends on the group. Like the people we were playing right. it with were all our friends. We're prone to getting jokey, mm-hmm. um, even when horrible things are happening. <laughs> right, especially if it's a one people. shot. Well, like also especially if it's a one shot. Like I'm gonna take sure, a one sure. shot a lot less seriously usually than I am a, a, a full campaign, unless right. I am told ahead of time they want it to be a very like, you know, serious, serious one shot. Yeah. Yep. But 
Yeah, so I know there are people that get mostly like escapism out of games or people that get, you know, catharsis out of games. Now, I I will say up front that gaming is never a replacement for therapy unless it's actually someone who's using it as therapy, like the Madonna group, like an actual Mm -hmm. professional who is integrating it into their therapy. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I have heard many complaints. I haven't run into this too much because I, I don't LARP, but too many complaints about people that, you know, LARP, LARP is your therapy group. Yeah, well, like they, they like go to LARP to unpack their own personal traumas or problems and like just kind of throw it at the other players who may not want that. Right. Yep. Um, don't do that unless it's with the consent of everybody there and they're yep. all cool about it. Mm-hmm. But what about me, Matthew? What do you uh, feel like you get out of most games? Or is it, once again, different for different games, for different groups? I think it's changed over time, uh, especially this year, the, you know, the, the dreadful year that has been 2020 in many ways. Because there ha- there were games probably up until the end of last year that I really did go to for catharsis to help evoke an emotional response from players. You know, they would sign up for something like uh, to use very obvious examples, Wraith the Oblivion or Change yeah. the Lost, and they would sign up in the full knowledge that they may be going through the emotional mill a little, uh, mm-hmm. but. We all did it with consent. We would all sign up to these things because that's what we wanted out of a game. With the, I guess, uh, the the general global mood of this year, I have not felt drawn to running those kinds of games whatsoever. I have been drawn mm-hmm. to escapism and to challenge. Uh, escapism because, of course, uh, when the world is looking bleak, you want to play something that's lighthearted, lightly engaging, that you can joke about a lot without someone reminding you that you've got to stick to a certain tone. But challenge is something I particularly enjoy, whether it's in the case of uh, of role-playing games, board games, video games, uh, something that brings with it a certain level of difficulty and puzzle solving Mm -hmm. because I find there is a greater catharsis, not in an emotional sense, but in an accomplishment sense Mm -hmm. when you overcome a large obstacle or a complex obstacle. But Um, it's a place where you and I are very different because puzzles are one thing. Like, I love difficult puzzle games. mm -hmm. I do not love video games like Dark Souls where you have to just die forever. Um, to eventually learn it. Like, every time, like, I get frustrated with that. Now, games like Hades, where dying moves the story forward, are very different. Um, but even with that, like, I'm, I'm playing Hades on god mode. I'm not gonna, you know, anyone that, that, that looks at my stats for Hades and thinks I'm actually playing that well is completely wrong, because I'm playing on god mode. I have, like, 80% damage reduction. Because I just want to see the story. god mode. I just got that. Sorry. Oh, my God. (laughs) But yeah, like, I just want to see the story. Um, yeah. When I play Assassin's Creed games, I usually play on whatever their recommended difficulty is, which isn't that hard once you get a little bit of gear. Um, whereas I know certain people, like my boyfriend, will like mod games to make them harder. Like I'm fine with Skyrim the way it is, and then I know people that will mod it to like you can freeze and you have to eat and you have to like actually take care of all this stuff. And I'm like, I I don't want to think about that. I just I just want to play the game and be a hero. Uh, and I'm kind of. In the middle spot that I'm growing to appreciate challenge because I was very much in your camp, Dixie, in terms of like, I will play the easiest mode possible so I can read the story, click a few buttons, maybe have a brief moment of engagement and move on. Um, but uh, to kind of keep it to the tabletop space, um, you know, I'm starting to grow to a certain degree attracted to games where there's a kind of implicit end condition mm-hmm. that's very difficult to accomplish. Mm. Um I'm not talking Call of Cthulhu in the sense of like you're gonna die, so just what's the fun? Because it could mean that, that there's no real winning condition. It's just it, losing as entertainingly as possible. Um, but there are games like um, uh, Aspire or Cyberpunk Red where um, there are certainly large groups or powerful organizations that are gonna be extremely difficult mm-hmm. to overcome. Um, and it's like, okay, but maybe I do wanna take a swing at that. And, and how does that happen? Yeah, I I find that I mind it less personally in tabletop games because mm. of, well, partially because most of the groups I play with encourage you to fail forward. Um, right. So like, yeah, maybe you didn't take out the guy this time, but you've learned a valuable piece of information that you can use to try to take him out next time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I don't like... <sighs> I don't like it when it feels like DMs or GMs or you know, storytellers or story guides or whatever are antagonistic toward me. That's, yeah. that's the only thing that I don't like is when they're like, 
you're all going like, to die, and I'm going to be gleeful about it, even if you're upset because you put so much work into this character. The, the, the kind of meat grinder D&D games. Which, well, once again, if I signed up for that, and I'm like, mm-hmm. totally, this character might die. I got another one ready to go as soon as this one goes. Not a big deal. But if it's like a, a vampire campaign that I have put, you know, two years into oh, with a character... Okay. The last thing I want is some asshole storyteller to be like, oh, this character that you've lovingly crafted for two years, I'm just going to kill them and you can't do anything about it. Yeah. I feel like that trend of GMing has really fallen out of favor. Same. Um, with, with increasing talks around things like consent and everything being more collaborative. That I remember when I first got into role playing, there was that that kind of wave of antagonistic GM. The looking back to the old Tomb of Horrors module with fondness was very much on the rise again. But now I feel like most people don't, and I'm speaking in general terms, of course. But it it seems to me that most people don't sign up to games for their characters to be killed. Uh, but I remember when I used to play uh, 40k RPGs. Mm-hmm. So this is back when Fantasy Flight used to publish them. And you had mm-hmm. Dark Heresy, Black Crusade, Rogue Trader, a few right, others. Right. And I remember that was my first experience of playing a game that felt punishingly difficult to achieve anything of note. And the setting also didn't provide you with any kind of in-character sort of setting reward for trying. It just felt so horribly bleak. I guess it's often called grimdark now Mm. that I felt there was no point even trying. This was a game that if I signed up to it, Mm -hmm. I knew that I would spend a long time having to create a character because it was by no means a simple percentile system. There was a lot of points flying around at character creation. And then it would just be a slow grind to the point that you would die or be accused of being chaotic and be purged. And some people are attracted to that. And I held nothing against them and I held nothing against the 40k system. It just wasn't for me. Uh, But for my tastes, that was just that kind of masochism. Wasn't right. was not what drew me to gaming, which I guess is contrasted with, as you say, Dixie, how I play video games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wouldn't play Dark Souls. I'm not at all interested in Dark Souls. Interesting. It may just be the aesthetic. I'm not sure. Right. But you played Hollow Knight and Cuphead and other games yes. that are generally regarded as difficult to pick up or to master. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I, I do see a difference in the style of play, but. Um, I but maybe it's because I'm also not particularly drawn to out and out violence. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't mind it in a very sort of cartoonish way in the cuphead style, uh, or very fantastical like Hollow Knight, but Dark Souls just seems a bit to slam you're crushed with a giant mace and <laughs> you know you're gonna have to face that giant mace another twenty times before you get past it doesn't have the same resonance i guess for me emotionally yeah and that's 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 why i prefer games where you are like a little overpowered compared to everybody else like i i picked up assassin's creed valhalla i'm playing it a little bit and like i i like that i can just swing my two-handed axe through like eight guys in a row because i'm a badass like i like being a badass it's fun for me i've run into a couple of fights that were a little too hard for me and i'm like i will come back to this fight later because it's like in this game, you, you don't have levels. You have, like, a power level. And I've, I've run across two fights that are, like, power level 160 when I'm 90. And I'm like, oh, okay, not going to do that right now. But I will come right. back and kick your ass later when I'm above your power level. <laughs> but, yeah, that's that's what I personally enjoy. Like, I like feeling like a badass. It's part of why I, I still really like playing D&D is because... Though I, I, I love vampire in the politics and I love horror games uh, for the occasional thing. Sometimes I just want to be a hero. Like, I want to be the good guy. Um, even in games like Exalted, where you are constantly, like, examining what it means to be the good guy. Like, oh, you right. saved these people, but did you make things worse in the long run? Did you mess up the local economy? Did you, you know, accidentally? It's, it's, it's kind of like in the Avengers stuff where they have to start dealing with, like, oh, we hurt a lot of civilians while we were right. doing this fight. Um mm-hmm. I still find that interesting because you still like doing the moral dilemma while still you know feeling like a hero is is fascinating to me. Um, but just just getting crushed constantly or getting hurt constantly is not fun for me at all. 
we, we our uh, our storyteller for RB five game made the mistake our very first session because he hadn't played with the hunger mechanic before. Uh, mm. He was like, "Oh, I'll start you all at hunger three, because um, it'll be fun." And hunger three is punishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to your roles. So that very first night, all of us were like, our characters suck. We can't do anything. And then the next session, he was like, okay, Hunger 1. And we're all like, oh, we're awesome. Okay, cool. Got it. I hadn't thought about that. But I, I, yeah, you use Hunger as kind of a dial to figure out how punishing or light you want the game to be. It's a really interesting point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because your 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 Hunger Dice are a whole thing. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting thing a lot of D&D modules of old explore, especially Dark Sun, where you start off with no equipment. It often starts off where, you know, you start your adventure, you're in a jail cell, or you are escaped slaves, or you have just been freed from a gladiatorial arena. That's every Skyrim game, or every Elder Scrolls game, how it starts. Oh, yeah. Uh, And the idea is that, yes, you do start off on the bottom of the food chain, but often those D&D games kind of... And again, this is where my tastes perhaps differ from yours, Dixie, but in, Mm -hmm. in those games, they very quickly change their mind and you quickly find a cache of equipment and now all of a sudden you're tooled up and ready to fight there's not much of a slow burn to to, i guess to growth um whereas i guess i look at a video game like for instance uh, the metal gear series where you start off pretty much every single game dropped in a hostile location with no equipment for some farcical reason. Mm -hmm. And so you are having to procure your equipment on site bit by bit, and you've got to go deeper and deeper to find the better equipment. But that means you've got to go up against uh, sometimes overpowered challenges in order to access the sniper rifle or the rocket launcher or what have you. And, And that for me feels rewarding. Yeah. Like I, I want to be very clear. I don't mind a challenge. I like a challenge. What I, what, what, I, what I don't like is what feels like punishment. Yeah. Um, to me, there's a big difference between like, like I, I play the Borderlands games, for instance. I, mm-hmm. I play them on normal difficulty, and there have been multiple fights in those games where I died several times before I finally figured out the fight. And I don't okay. mind that as long as I feel like I'm getting somewhere. Right. It's, it's, it's when I feel like I have hit a wall that I get irritated. Um, I... I had a D&D game a few years ago go slightly off the rails because we had this artifact that I had gotten from somebody, right? And we were supposed to, like, protect the artifact with our lives. Like, that was our whole thing. So I was trying to take it with me through a thing. And the DM suddenly decided that, by God, he was going to take the artifact away from me and there was nothing that I could do about it. And I was like, well, I don't like this character anymore. Like, I just feel like I failed. This, this was literally my only drive was to protect this thing and get it somewhere. And you just took it from me. Mm-hmm. Like, what, why did you do that? You know, why did you give me literally no chance to, to keep it? And that, that irritated me because, like, I didn't have any other reason to be adventuring with these people. I was literally like, you just took away all the motivation for my character. Why? Why? Right. And I, I think you bring up a really good point about context. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and this this folds into things like uh, uh, consent and X cards and and uh, a pregame checklist and whatnot. But the is, if you know what you're going into in the game, you can accept or appreciate a lot more. Right. Um. So, uh, uh we're talking about games where the punishing difficulty, but like Paranoia as an example of a game that is you're not going to win. It's 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 right. the whole game is designed to show you. The, the ludicrous extremes of bureaucracy and paranoia, hence the name. Yeah, I mean, like, Dread, Ten Candles, like, you're not, right. you're going to die in those games. Right. But um, uh, here's actually a story I haven't talked a lot about, but um, one of the biggest mistakes I made as a game master is um, I got all my players to agree to play to a Star Wars game. Um, and they played a Star Wars, either you're playing um, uh, uh, Empire TIE fighter pilots. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's like, you know, yeah, you're, yeah. And, and I even have like campaign posters, like, you know, real men, real men don't fly with shields kind of stuff, you know, just really camping up the fact right. that these are potentially disposable characters. Um, and then after a couple of sessions, I sprung the reveal that actually it was my mashup of Star Wars and Call of Cthulhu. Um, and they started seeing the horrors of, of the areas of the Star Wars universe. And a lot of players rejected that. And I realized it took me many years to realize why is because when you position a game as star Wars, it is inherently explicitly heroic. If you're playing the bad guys, mm-hmm. you're still heroic. Um, the idea is that we're going to, 
become the heroes or we're going to find our ways out of this corrupt empire or something. Yeah. Um, and then when you mash it up with a fatalistic genre, um, I, I, I basically completely changed the expectations of the game. And if this isn't the game I signed up for, I might have been cool with that if I had known that going in, mm-hmm. but I didn't. And so now I'm mad. Yeah, I think I think that's part of why, like like I was saying, like doing a pregame checklist or getting people on board. Like my, uh, th- th- there were a couple of us in my current B5 game who wanted to have secrets to start off with. And mm-hmm. my ST was very adamant about like, they have to come out in three sessions. Mm-hmm. Like, because you don't, you don't want to spring that on somebody 12 sessions in. Like, oh, by the way, we've had a secret lair this whole time that so-and-so is doing blood sorcery in. Like, that's right. that's, that's not something that you wait to you know, spring on people. So, like, mm-hmm. if you have secrets, they have to come out within three sessions. And I think that's a pretty decent rule. Also, the SD had to okay all the secrets, obviously. Right. Um, so doing that kind of thing is really important. But also just, like, don't don't trick your players, in that way, like don't 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 no. don't pull a bait no. and switch on them. As to, as to what kind of game they're they're playing, because um, right. I feel like no one's ever going to react well to that. And mm-hmm. and yeah, like in in this game I was in, I, I had teamed up with a couple of people, and literally we were only teamed up to bring this thing. And my DM was like, "I'm taking the thing from you," and I'm like, uh, "So I'm leaving." Like, <laughs> like I, I I don't know what you want me to do right now, <laughs> and I'm kind right. of pissed. And the game did fall apart after that. Like we didn't really play anymore, and it was because I was so like. I was like, I, I, I don't know what to do. Yeah, we had a uh, back in the day when I used to role play with people in person. Uh, we once, my, myself and one of my groups, had a session where one of the players confronted the storyteller in game or just out of game to say, I just don't understand why my character would do what your NPC is basically intimidating him into doing. Why, why wouldn't I just skip? the domain why wouldn't i just betray this person and the storyteller went out of character and said um well you know this is the plot i've written and and, i think (laughs) i think that's a perfectly fine thing to say if the players aren't getting on board sometimes they just you just need buy-in uh but the player was adamant and i don't hold this against them either uh, that well in that case i'm playing the wrong character for this game because mm-hmm, right. the way you encouraged me to write this character, uh, the way we we collaborated on creating this character, and, I, and he spoke for the other players as well, and what was correct in doing so, were, would not have placed us as the stooges of a bully, because that right. wasn't who we were playing. And I guess to provide context, rather than being all vague, we were essentially all rather hard and fast anarchs in a game where a Camarilla spy master was trying to get us to turn against another Anarch, and it just um, didn't work, but just right. because this Camarilla Spymaster had evidence of us breaching the masquerade, you know, we're all here, why don't we just all kill the Spymaster? Right? <laughs> well, it's, because, it's because the plot says you can't. And so that game fell apart as well. Right. Uh, I completely agree, I don't think you can just, you shouldn't just spring a, a shock, uh, whether it's a plot twist, uh, or, well, a jarring plot twist or a change in i guess genre or tone on, right. on, on a group because you if you go into a movie theater uh back when they were open or if you hell if you play a video game you sign up with a certain foreknowledge of what the subject matter of that material is going to be if i'm watching pride and prejudice I'm not expecting it to be Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. If I go to Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, however, I'm not expecting it to be Pride and Prejudice. Right. So I think RPGs should do the same thing. I I feel like there is an exception to that. There's a small exception to that. Okay. Um, uh, and particularly, um, I'm trying to keep this tabletop space, but I think the best example of this, honestly, is Doku Doku. I knew you were going to mention that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because nothing about that game sets you up for what actually happens in that game. That is not but true, because there are warnings at the beginning. There are tons of but, warnings but, about how it's mature, and it's got blood and sensitive stuff, and yeah. Well, that, that's what I was going to say, is that the context comes from... It, it's a metatextual context, right? Right. Um, nothing about the game itself tells you that, but like if you go to the Steam page, you get that. If you go to the website, it tells you that. And also, right. anybody who's played it will say, oh my god, you have to play this. I can't tell you anything. Ah, um, well. So you know there's a twist coming. 
Well, that and that is the key there, I think. It's that I don't think people would have been playing Doki Doki Literature Club unless people have been saying, you should really play this, but I'm not going to tell you what happens. You know, just, you, there, there's, there's so just, many visual novels out there. Yeah, just that, just that it's fucked up. Like, you're just going to be like, it's got a twist, it gets weird. Yeah, right. so I think there is an inbuilt expectation that Doki Doki is going to get strange. It's just people don't necessarily know how it's going to get or, strange. Or, or, or when, but, 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 yeah. Right, but that, that's the thing is that sometimes you can you can have a conversation that says, I can't tell you what the context is coming up, but understand that the game you're, we're going to start off playing is not the game's going to become. Um, and here's some really rough edges you know, when you say things like, okay, there's going to be horror, there's going to be blood, there's going to be... Okay, well, obviously, some horror or horror Jason Gabe is going to happen, so I can mentally prepare for that. Um, but the other thing is also, you better damn well nail the twist if you do that. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so it's like, if you're going to do that, you better be absolutely confident that you can make that really land. Um, because if you're going against the core tenets of the game... It's gonna, it's, it's gonna be really hard to overcome that. Uh, and this, an example of this that keeps coming up weirdly on my timeline, um, <laughs> is people who are incensed, incensed that there's going to be anti-corporate politics in Werewolf the Apocalypse games. <laughs> Sorry. And I'm just like, that's the game. That's not, that's not subtext. That's not meta text. That's just text. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's in, it's, it tells you, by the way, you're going to murder a bunch of people in oil companies. That's pretty much the game. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's a lot more than that, but that's a big part of the game. And so if you make a World of the Apocalypse character and you find out the game is you need to actually work for an oil baron, you better nail that twist really well. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's something else like... <laughs> I think I think one part of this though that, that we're not touching on so much um, is the parasocial relationship part of it, which is that mm-hmm. people do get attached to their characters. Like right. that's part of why character creation for everybody dies one shots tends to be a lot less involved. Um, mm-hmm. Like the dread character creation is just a, a list of a few questions, and the yep. ten candles one is one that you do in game and it takes about fifteen minutes. Um, and it's it's because you're not going to get attached to those characters. But if I have set like if I have sat down and like lovingly made a character and found reference photos and, you know, found, found reference photos for her touchstones or her mom back home or whatever, or her dog, like I, I clearly care about this character. Um, it's, 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 it's why it, people get sad about the deaths of fictional characters. One of the very, the, the first time I cried over a book is when I was nine years old and was reading Chronicles of Narnia, maybe, maybe seven or eight. And, uh, the three-foot-tall mouse, Reepicheep, sailed off into the distance, I thought never to be seen again. And mm-hmm. I cried. Like, I couldn't explain to my mom why I was sad, <laughs> but I was mm-hmm. very sad. It's very easy to get attached to a fictional character, especially if you're the one that made them. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, having them just get killed or having them be forced to do something that is not something they would ever do, in your opinion, uh, mm-hmm. that can be rough. and it, 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 it can feel violating. Like, it, mm-hmm. it, it can feel super violating for someone to be like, oh, well, your character's going to betray the others. It's like, but I wouldn't do that. I'm playing a very good person, you know? Yep, exactly. Yeah, I remember the first time uh, I was uh, running, uh, I mentioned a few times way back when that I was running a Horror on the Orient Express right. campaign. And that's concluded now. And it actually concluded with the investigators saying, got to Trieste. Oh, yeah, didn't uh, they just, like, get off the train and go to something else? Yeah, they got to Trieste in, I guess, what was Yugoslavia, and uh, thought, you know what, we're just going to catch a boat and go back to the United Kingdom via the Mediterranean because we think we're being manipulated. And during all of that, uh, the the escape, I guess, from the plot, one of the and we knew that the campaign was winding down as a result of this, possibly to be picked up with new pl- with new characters, and the players were perfectly mm-hmm. up for that. But uh, while they were making their escape one of the investigators died. Mm-hmm. Now, most people who have played Call of Cthulhu will probably be aware that mortality is pretty ready <laughs> in, right. in Call of Cthulhu. However, uh, I didn't realise, and shame on me for not realising it, that this player was not prepared for character death. That this player, this was only her... In fact, I think it was her first role-playing game. 
And wow. because she'd been playing Horror on the Orient Express as her first role-playing game, we had been playing this for about a year, maybe, a year and a half. So there was she had more invested in her character than I gave credit to. And uh-huh. when her right. character was subsequently immolated by another player character, no less, who basically gave himself over to, to the cult. Wow. Uh, she, it, it wasn't like she was upset. There weren't floods of tears or anything like that, but she was clearly jarred mm-hmm. by it and left feeling quite empty because, yeah, all of a sudden, a very, a, something you invested a lot of time in just isn't there anymore. So I I completely see what you mean. I think that kind of relationship, and it's certainly educated me into thinking, okay, I need to be a little more careful about this. Yeah. Uh, because I think when a lot of us get into role-playing, you are told your characters can die. And then you quickly forget it because in, in games like Vampire the Masquerade, especially a lot of World of Darkness games, there is so much focus on the character and mm-hmm. not on the stats of the character and the character's, I guess, events and what they go through that you start thinking the final death is actually pretty slim. The likelihood right. of death is pretty slim because the storyteller is not going to throw away all of those years of story just, mm-hmm. to, just to kill me. Uh, and then when it happens, you're left feeling, oh, shit, uh, that that wasn't fun. <laughs> yeah, and, and like once once again, it, it really depends on the consent of the players. Because in my current V five group, like my SC is under strict instructions to never kill my character unless I give him permission, because I mm. love her. Like I am so in love with this character. Um, mm. I, I I love playing her. I'm having a great time. Um, however, one of our other ones constantly is making jokes about how he's going to meet final death this week. And I think that he is prepared for that. Like, I think that he is prepared to bring a new character in and get rid of his old one. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but I don't think he'd be upset if it would, because he's, he's playing a Malkavian. And one of his ticks is that he um, narrates everything he does in like Mm -hmm. an old timey, like Dwarf narration voice. Right. So we keep waiting for us to be like going covert amongst the anarchs or something. And him to say something like, no one would ever suspect that this was actually a Camarilla <laughs> infiltrating the Anarchs. And then we're all screwed. Right. Um, because that, that that would be funny. It would be, it would be a funny mm. way to go because in in character, he doesn't realize that he does that. Right. Um, so yeah, like that, that it's, it's, it's all about consent and buy-in. I'm running 10 candles for a group. Uh, actually, I, I, I will have already run it by the time this happens. Um, and yeah, the first thing you tell people is like, you're all going to die by the end of this game. So be okay with that. I do think there's a little bit of a generational component here as well. Um, I don't think it's as strong as a lot of of older gamers like myself sometimes want to believe it to be um, because I have seen some very new players completely embrace fatalism. But uh, it's kind of, Matthew alluded to this a little bit earlier, that there is this kind of point of in the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s of your character might die at any moment. Um, and that was considered to be largely a feature of tabletop role-playing games as a concept. Um, mm-hmm. I remember specifically, uh, Cyberpunk 2020 was, was very aggressive in positioning this concept to players. Um, and, uh, there was even an entire source book uh, called Listen Up Your Primitive Screwheads that was specifically about giving referees uh, advice and guidance on how to deal with overpowered players. Right. Um, and like, here's how I can, you know, and, and there's pictures of Mike Pondsmith, the designer, putting things like, like landmines like underneath people when cardboard things are like b- buckets of acid over doors. They open a door and a bucket of acid to fall on them. It's like kind of slapstick imagery to explain what was believed to be a, a concept that everyone understood in the industry, mm-hmm. which was that sometimes you have to kill player characters. Um, then around, and frankly, I think White Wolf had a, a huge chunk to do with this. There's a, a, a sea change towards player characters as as narrative focus rather than as the avatar of playing through increasingly implausibly dangerous puzzles. Right. Um, and so that kind of shifts, but there are lots of people who have been gaming now for decades who never experienced that time. And sometimes they run a jar of some of these still lingering implicit assumptions about what tabletop role-playing games are and how they act. Um, and so you get this, well, I just cut your character off. Why are you worried about it? Um, uh, and then there's also, uh, uh, 
if other player characters are involved, then that could be even more frustrating. I know um, in live action games, it could be really rough mm, to yeah. find that other players have brought this about. Um, I, uh, for a while, I, I was part of a group of Anarchs too. And um, near the end of our run, our, all we were doing was finding extremely powerful Camaral elders and murdering them. That was pretty much all we were doing in character. And right. everyone knew it, but no one could prove it. Um, and near the end, we kind of just stopped because it's like, yes, this is a setting. Yes, there's a, a validity to why our character's doing what we're doing. But all we're really doing is just making players' lives miserable. Yeah. Um, so we just kind of stopped doing it. And we just kind of collectively said, you know what? We're done with this. There's other reasons. Uh, I've talked before about the timing of 2001 of why other reasons why we did this. But um, that was something we were already in our minds at the time was just like, yeah, we're just pissing people off and, and ruining their fun. So we're done. Yeah. May, 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 I, may I throw something in there about... Sure. What if I said no? What if I was just like, then, no, you're done? Uh, then I would politely concede my time. <laughs> Go ahead, Matthew. I don't believe that. <laughs> uh, so it's something I've noticed with players of Vampire the Masquerade, and uh, this is, I guess, almost following on from what you said about wealth, the apocalypse being a game about fighting corporation uh, mm -hmm. and government and so on that there's this assumption that the first edition of Vampire the Masquerade was all about playing Anarchs. You're at the bottom of the ladder and you're constantly punching up. And that was brought back in a major way with V5, that you mm -hmm. are the outsiders, you are to bring down the corrupt establishment or try and find a place somewhere nestled within it where you're not being attacked constantly by people above you. And mm -hmm. it... So the the, uh, the idea of what players wanted when signing up for these games, I feel, and again, speaking in generalizations, definitely changed over the years of my playing Vampire, where, yes, when I first played Vampire the Masquerade, I found people who were all for playing sort of punks and bikers and the like. And then there was a big shift over to playing Camarilla and Sabat primarily. So yep. there was more of a, a power fantasy rather than a punching up fantasy, uh, a component of the game where you start off in the hierarchy. You start off with the Anarchs beneath you, with the mm -hmm. Finnbloods beneath you, with Caitiff beneath you. And essentially that means the game is now about becoming prince, about becoming primogen. You are essentially aspiring to be the villain in those games rather than mm -hmm. aspiring to take down the villains. And so we and so it's like well our subject of you know why am gaming or why are gaming? <laughs> Um, why are games? Why are games, <laughs> why are games <laughs> changed with the additions of Vampire the Masquerade? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, or why is Vampire? Uh, because come V5, you've got an awful lot of members of the fan base, it seems, complaining about the SJW politics or the, the liberal agenda or whatever you want to call it, or Marxists, that you know we don't want to be made to play street-level vampires. We want to go straight in playing Sabat monsters. We want access to six dots of a discipline. <laughs> we want to be rolling more than ten dice in a pool. All of this stuff that I think is a holdover from the previous edition in, in the form of Revised, and I guess V20 to an extent, uh, which is it's unusual because, of course, it's ignoring the the, the message of V5 and it's ignoring the roots of the role-playing game, and that people engage with RPGs for different reasons. That mm -hmm. while you may be unhappy that Vampire has this street-level message, there are other players who love it and are engaging with it because of that message. Yeah. Like, our, our home game is a cam game, but um, we are definitely playing, like, you know, low-ranking low cam. We're not, like, you know way up there yet uh we are basically errand people for uh the various their cam folks and we're also mm. slowly realizing that there's a lot of corruption going on and that we're not super happy with it we made some anarch friends so who knows how long it'll be a cam game uh currently it's a cam game technically <laughs> but yeah like it is it is interesting to play that especially in this day and age and this, po this po political atmosphere um just because 
yeah, like, I don't really want to be the leader of the cam, but also maybe I can fix it. You know, it's like all those different mentalities that you, you go through. Right. And I think it goes back to some stuff started earlier in the sense that, um, games can be intensely personal. And so, uh, you're bringing a lot of yourself to a game. Even if you're playing a character, that's very different from yourself. You're still bringing a lot of your expectations, mm -hmm. your life history, your experience, your identity to a game. And, no one's going to get it perfect because, frankly, people are not perfect. You know, we're going to mess up. We're going to rub each other the wrong way. We're going to say the wrong thing. Um, but as long as the game is making it clear what it's about and the group is making it clear what it's about in relation to that game, um, I, th I think a lot of those problems get solved and you can explore interesting areas. Like I've, for years, have been a Sabat apologist in terms of I think the Sabat is a really interesting, compelling part of Vampire of the Masquerade. But it's almost never for the same reasons that most other people like the Sabat. Oh. Um, the, the thrill of playing an over-the-top Batman-style grotesque villain fades after like 30 minutes right. in my experience. Totally. Um, it's, uh, we've, okay, we've, we've done the obligatory burning down an orphanage. Um, we've murdered people in a mall. Cool, we're done. Uh, that's it. Um, but there is something interesting about playing a character who is trapped in a death cult, literally, um, and being the antagonist to somebody else's heroic adventure. There's something that's interesting about that. Mm -hmm. and understanding that the NPC camera characters are going after, if they were a traditional um, V5 game or whatever, we would be the monsters that they're murdering before they move on to whatever political machinations they have. Mm -hmm. We're just a road bump in their story. And then playing that kind of Rosencrantz and Gildersern style between the cracks of a quote-unquote traditional vampire game right. can be really interesting and fun. But it's also an experience with a pretty limited shelf life. Um, and uh, when I would play in Sabat games in LARP, I, I realized over a long period of time that a lot of people just did not have those expectations. They genuinely thought they're going to play this character for years and it would be fine and that the stuff they're doing was just on some level okay. Um, not like personally okay. We all recognize that these are horrible characters, but also they were just comfortable in portraying these things in a way that I just wasn't. Um, I was playing them almost ironically to show there's no way people can actually coexist like this. And so I kept finding out situations where it's like I would throw myself into um, honor duels and conflicts and missions that, and, and going and, – and, and much like your friend, um, you mentioned uh, we're in Final Death tonight. I play my character like every session I was going to get my character killed, and I was – not only look, mm -hmm. looking forward to that, but also I wanted to enjoy that. It's like, of course I'm going to die. I'm the villain. I'm the, I'm the antagonist. Of course I'm going to die at somebody else's hands. Right. Um, but I never once articulated that to anybody. Um, I just assumed everyone was on the same page because like, well, this is the game I'm reading. So that's the game we're playing. So that's one of the reasons why I know I'm personally very vocal about the, the pregame checklist, the conversations, the session zeros, because just because you read a game and go, oh, this is the game, doesn't mean everyone else is reading the exact same game and going, this is the game too, because everyone's getting a slightly different version of that same game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, I mean, when we started playing our vampire game, I didn't think we were going to end up being vampire entrepreneurs. Uh, <laughs> but then somebody gave us a warehouse and now we have a warehouse. Um, and that's a whole thing that I don't even, yeah. Didn't ask for it, but here it is. And it's, it's actually quite fun. <laughs> have, have you turned it to a nightclub yet? Uh, no, the warehouse will not be a nightclub. The warehouse is too far away. The warehouse is currently a safe house and a part of the circulatory system. Oh, okay. Oh, that's that's moral. Um, we're only doing bad blood, actually. <laughs> oh, we are right. we are trying to get rid of the human trafficking. Because mm. uh, because we're I don't know because because we're human beings playing these characters and it's really hard to be like yes human trafficking I'm here for that even if, even as a vampire it just feels wrong. Uh, yeah. I'm go I'm going to arrogantly say that the four v five my proudest creation is the circulatory system. Uh, just because uh, I create, I, I needed an antagonist for the playtest material, the rusted vein scenario, right. right? And I thought we need some some human blood traffickers, essentially some blood doll traffickers. And I thought, well, let's come up with a small industry of vampires, and let's call them a circulatory system because that sounds smart. 
Right. And somehow they've now, I think, popped up in every single V5 book as if they've always been there. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and the thing is, if they're officially called the circulatory system, what a red flag for, <laughs> for the Second Inquisition. But that that's part of why I, I like them. I like uh, this sort of comic book level villainy, um, but that somehow works in the world of darkness. Yeah. I I have often argued that there's a lot more comic book DNA in the world of darkness. I think many people want to recognize. Mm. Um, I mean, hell, the World of the Apocalypse had comic book pages in most of their. I mean, books. there's I mean, there's literally a Vampire the Masquerade comic being published right now. So yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and there was one done by Moonstone Press like a, a decade mm-hmm. ago. I mean, it's like there, there's. I have the Beckett comic somewhere. It's not that great. <laughs> I, I do not recall it being good. No, um, but um, I mean, it's. There, there's a, a strong synergy because it was again it's the 90s, so it was coming out when when uh, groups like DC with their Vertigo line were coming out with similarly toned things, and so it's like it's not they're not superheroes, but there is comic book in there. Um, but again, that's something that for years I just assumed, and then when I started working on V20, I was like, oh. You can't say comic book. People get mad at you when you say that. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, Why have they read Sandman? Bit. Have they read other horror comics? Like, right. And that's where I was coming from. I'm coming from you know that stuff. I'm coming from like uh, you know the old school EC horror comics. Yeah. You know, it's like I'm not thinking you know Fantastic Four. Well, um, yeah, but I think the the larger part of the audience does imagine four color heroes as soon as you say comic book. They don't think of right. of Vertigo comics. And and yet, yeah, even looking as far back as something like Watchmen, uh, or or any of I guess Alan Moore's older material, uh, there's there is a lot you can take and put in a game of vampire or indeed any other World of Darkness game, and it still mm-hmm. be personally horrific. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We even ended up spending way more time talking about just like characters and how we identified them than uh, than I thought we would. That was a really interesting conversation that uh, we didn't touch on half the things we wanted to touch on. So we can maybe do this as a topic we can revisit in the future. Yeah, <laughs> uh, there's certainly been plenty of times where we're like, we're going to talk about this topic, and then say, cool. So next time we'll talk about this topic that we plan to talk mean, about we, this time. <laughs> we did talk about it on on some level as, as far as the what we all get out of games and what we expect out of games and kind of the social contracts that you enter into when you're playing a game. Um, and that's all very, very interesting. It just didn't cover nearly the breadth that we thought it was going to um, because we got very, you know, in the weeds on this. But I think it was a good conversation. So I'm okay with that. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. I mean, that is also why there's different games for different moods and themes and tones and friend groups and stuff. Um, even just with video games, like, am I in an Animal Crossing mood or am I in an Assassin's Creed mood? Funnily enough, both of them are abbreviated to AC. So <laughs> I'm always like, do I want AC and H or AC Valhalla? Oh, speaking of of Switch, um, uh, speaking of, Switch. I was trying to avoid this. Oh no, because you asked me to stay on the tabletop because now we're in officially in the. I didn't outro. ask you to say tabletop thing. They said we were going to stay in both. Well, well okay. Well, um, um, talking about uh, how people can kind of dial in their own experiences. I, I remember having a conversation with with you, and I think some of our friends. Because for a while, um, we have a private Discord, mm-hmm. and one of the channels on there was uh, Three Houses. Um, back when Three Houses was like, it's all, still a channel on there. Right? I think. Yeah, but it's, it's not. Th- it was before Animal Crossing, so it was basically it was we have three houses. The Animal Crossing game, and I was like, I'm still playing three houses. No, okay, cool. <laughs> um, but um, uh, uh, I, I I came in. And I was like, cool. I'm going to play on casual. I'm going to play on you know the default mode. Um, it'll be fine. Um, and then I was playing my second playthrough, and I was like, cool. I'm playing permadeath, and like everyone in the channel was like, why would you do that? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. well, because I'm a little bored with the mechanics. I think permadeath would make it more exciting for me. Um, and granted, I haven't played in a while, but I'm still halfway through that playthrough, but I still haven't lost a single person on permadeath. Yeah. Um, but there's certainly been plenty of times where I have used every one time. <laughs> I'm like, nope, nope, nope. We are not doing that. No way. That's the thing. Like, I don't, I don't want to lose any of my babies. <laughs> Right, and, so, and the thing is that neither do I. I still have that instinct, but it's like it would be challenging for me to like if because the first time I played through, I was just like, you know what? Yeah, Claude can die here because I know he'll come back or whatever next time. Mm-hmm. Um, or or Ferdinand von Eyre can die a lot because it's Ferdinand von Eyre, and he you know, he is Ferdinand von Eyre, and, and, and he will tell you exactly how important he is. 
Um, he, not, not even death can stop him. Um, but I mean, I was like, okay, no, but wait, what happens if I, in a situation where like I, I have to lose someone and like I, I'm connected to these characters, I kind of want to see what that's like right. if, if I'm ever put in that hard position and kind of empathize closer with these commanders who maybe have to make those hard decisions. Um, and like I said, I'm only halfway through, but I, I've got comfortable enough with the formula that I'm, I still haven't lost anybody. So it's been like, knock on wood, I'm a decent military commander, but I'm also playing on normal difficulty. Um, mm-hmm. And also this is my game plus. So I have like a gazillion weapons and like everyone's skill level. <laughs> so I'm, I'm also overleveled. Yeah, so right. I'm not that much different. Um, but it was, a, but again, it was the, the, because the game gave me that option, I can now play that game in a way differently from other people playing that game. And we're still playing the same game. Um, yeah. I think, Tabletop games don't quite yet have that because everyone needs to be on the same page for the tabletop game to work. Mm -hmm. But different tabletop groups can have very different experiences. And occasionally I see people in playtests in particular where it's like, well, my group, we made these decisions with your playtest rules and the game is irretrievably, irrevocably, horribly broken because we can't do this one thing. And lots of other tabletop groups are like, we don't care. Um, and they're fine with it. So, I mean, uh, I think there's, it, it goes back to that kind of, everyone approaches it in a way, but it's interesting when the game itself can provide you levers and switches to say, here's explicitly how you can change the game to get different experiences. Yeah, totally. Um, and that's, 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 you know, changing the game to get the right experience is something that is good to be able to do. That's, that's, that's part mm-hmm. of why, so I've been seeing people in one of our discords talk about, Going back to to, to to Hades for a sec, for a second, being mm. like, "Oh, I I I just cleared it for the third time ever. Oh my god!" And I'm like, "I've cleared it like fifty times because I'm playing on God mode, and I'm just right. here for the story and to beat things up. Like a lot of what I get out mm. of video games like that is just the joy of being like, I am more badass than all of you, um, because that's not a feeling I get very often in real life. So it's nice to be in a video sure. game and just be like, look how strong I am. I'm swinging this axe everywhere, like." It's, it's, it's just fun for me. Um, and with with, right. with oh. Hades in particular, like, I played it through on normal, I think, 18 or 20 times. I think I only, I, I made it out, like, once. And I was like, that's, I, I'm not doing this 500 more times to get the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? But, like, you know, I, you know uh, I've seen Matthew uh, finish Cuphead, and we've talked about platformers. I'm starting to get into platformers. And so it's like, I picked up the um, uh, Mega Man X series, which is not, by any stretch, a, a punishingly difficult platform, right. but it, it, it requires some skill. Yeah. Um, and I've been enjoying that because I specifically bought it for that purpose. So I want to play a game that sets moderate level platforming. Um, it, it, it's not the deep end of something like Cuphead in terms of punishing difficulty, but it's 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 challenge. And I'm having to play the screens over and over and over again. But part of that specific design is memorizing patterns and figuring out, okay, I, I've been through this a dozen times before. I know that if I duck here, that bullet's going to hit crossover just right this moment so i can jump up and hit that person before the next bullet comes that's a very specific style of gameplay but again if you don't know that going in it's just like i just keep fucking dying in this game this is irritating yeah you can't tank mm-hmm. games like that as it's often called uh, and I, I i still love the Mega Man games i've only ever played the original ones pre-x mm-hmm. i guess and i downloaded them all onto the ps4 when i was still playing on that and um in fact that was the first game i went through with my son and oh. it was um it was surprising how difficult they were uh, oh, to yeah. go back to. I mean, some old Nintendo Entertainment System games are just difficult by design, by by, by poor design. Uh, so things like mm-hmm. clipping and uh, yeah, hitboxes and things like that are just aren't terribly clear. But Mega Man games are, and are, I guess the Castlevania games are some of the first platformers that were just challenging but not in my opinion frustratingly challenging right Uh, there was always a way around them you just had to take your time figure it out is there a weapon that affects this boss more than another you know should i be jumping here should i be sliding here should i be doing this that or the other uh and yeah I, i always get a lot of satisfaction when i'm gaming and not just um video gaming but role playing too uh it's I guess the oldest example is the troll in D&D. 
Mm-hmm, the right. fact that you can keep hitting that troll and you can reduce its hit points down to zero, but it's a lot easier if you have acid or fire on hand. Mm-hmm. And unless you know that in character or out of character, you're going to have a really hard challenge. But once you know it, uh, then brilliant. You have overcome a challenge. You've you've solved the puzzle. And yep. I think that can be a really rewarding experience for players. Mm-hmm, definitely. So do you have any final thoughts on this uh, topic? So we've talked mostly about one specific thing this whole time, but it's been fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I honestly, uh, I think we've, we've covered this inadvertent subtopic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. So if people wanted to find you and ask you questions about said subtopic, Eddie, where would they do so? Um, you can find me, uh, through pugstay.com and from there, uh, have access to all of our social media, all my social media accounts, I should say. I going to say, um, you have my social media on your website. That's weird. Yes. It's, it's, it's very creepy. Um, but also, uh, we've been hanging out a lot in the, uh, uh, Pathcast discord channel and our, on our honest path discord. So yeah, which is always linked in the show notes. Uh, Matthew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can find me on matthewdawkins.com. They can also find all of Dixie's social media on my website. <laughs> Y'all too. are weird. And, well, it's just because we love you, Dixie, and we want to promote you. I'm, I mean, my, my Instagram is mostly cat pictures, but all right. Well, that's that's all we care about, really. And uh, yeah, dog pictures. Uh, just to echo, really, do check out... In fact, don't just check out the Onyx Pathcast channel uh, on Discord. We've got a whole load of interesting servers on our Onyx Path Discord. And uh, as well as the Onyx Path YouTube channel, which is regularly updated, practically daily updated uh, with new videos. Over on my channel right now, The Gentleman Gamer, I'm doing A Gentleman's Guide to Scarred Lands, which is uh, short videos that act as teasers, sort of snippets of the Scarred Lands setting, what makes it interesting. And yeah, I'd really love it if people check it out. If they're not interested in Scarlands, maybe watching those videos might change their mind. Yeah, and the Dead Man's Rest Kickstarter is ongoing, I believe, right now. Um, yep. Also, I have one final question for you, Matthew. Yes. Would a gentleman actually be allowed in the Scarlands? A gentleman? Hmm. Maybe not a gentleman, but a gentleman, yes. I feel like it might be a little bit too harsh for him, but all right. No, no. Uh, as long as he had brought some rusty pots and pans from a, <laughs> that stolen from a dead man, he should be fine. Are they are they steels <laughs> pots and pans? Steels pots and pans. Yeah, where the the uh, sales director, I have to say, has some very unusual techniques uh, behind uh, satisfying her clients. But least said about that, the better. <laughs> well, as always, you can find me on uh, all my coworkers' websites, apparently. Uh, or at DixieCyanide.com, <laughs> DixieCyanide on my social media. Wait, DixieCochran.com. DixieCyanide.com. <laughs> I, I usually say that backwards, and I messed it up, and I don't even know my own name anymore. If you Google Dixie That's Cyanide, why we have on our website, because you forget him all the time. Uh, true, true. You can find us uh, on the Honest Path Discord, on the Honest Path Forums, on the and as always, many worlds, one podcast.